Let me get that going. You guys go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be uh, in a parable here in a little bit in the book of Matthew chapter 25. And uh, you guys can be turned there. As you guys turn there, though, I want to just give us a little heads up on next week uh, on the story and the story that's starting in two weeks. Uh, but I want to give you a heads up real quick and an encouragement to just be ready for that as we begin to pray and invite and think about those people in our life that might be a part of that with us. Meant to have it this week. I didn't get shipping kind of got behind or we would have had it this week. But next week I'll have for you um, some personalized invitations that you can fill out and give that to somebody who you'd like to invite to be part of the story with us. If they come to be part of the story with us, they'll receive a free story Bible that we'll have for every one of our guests, whether their age is adult or teen or even children. And they'll also be able to just kind of get introduced to this whole thing. Now, if they don't show up on the 13th when we launch it, that's fine. Anytime throughout the story series, which is 31 weeks, by the way, uh, we will be handing out those three Bibles. So here's what I want you guys to be doing in preparation. Uh, before next week, just ask God this week, who can I begin to invite? We thought about maybe sending out just a mass mail uh, to the whole area, um, but I think it's better if we get personal invites and get connected with our neighbors. So if you've got somebody in mind, and we all do, let's just ask the Lord to lead us in that way. Next week we're going to have some flyers you guys can fill out and you pray over, take that to a neighbor, take that to a coworker, take that to a family member, invite them to be part of the story with us. Uh, we still believe a couple of things. We believe Jesus is the greatest thing ever on earth. And we also believe that the Bible is still very attractive to people and people want to know Scripture. So we're excited to be able to share that with many people as we start the story. Let's pray before we jump into our summer school teaching. Father, I am thankful for this day. Thankful to worship, thankful to share the meeting with my church. As we sang, God, may the words of our mouths, the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, And we realize what we've been given in the gospel of Jesus and the grace that has been poured out upon us. The salvation that we've received from King Jesus and Father, may we light or may you, Lord, more accurately light the fire within us. Fan Thank you for the opportunity to We pray that you bring to mind, God. Put on our hearts the sweet people we can be invited to experiencing the story, your story together, God. Whoever that could be, I pray that you start putting that to everybody in mind. And you'll convict us, Lord, of offering that quick and simple invitation to somebody to say, hey, come, come walk through church with us. Pray for all the many people in Canadian and we are. Miami, Perry, come to know more than you as we go through that story together. We love you, God. Bless us now as we open your word in Matthew 25. And let's hear it afresh. In the name of Jesus, we pray. We're going to set the picture here for where we're going. For this parable of Jesus that finds itself in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. So what you've got to do is let's use our imagination. Let's put on our sandals and let's put ourselves in a village in the time of Jesus. 
It could be Nazareth, could be Cana, could be Capernaum. Any small, tightly knit and connected community. Now, to understand this parable, Danny, if you'll hit the lights, it is night. It is night. And this night is filled with excitement. The village is going to be alive and awake on this night, ready to celebrate. Because on this night, out of two different homes, one for a bride and one for a groom, there's going to be a gathering. There's going to be a wedding. So a wedding celebration in an ancient village looked like this. So my volunteers, I've got a bunch of little girls. Come on up. And I've got one groom, Coleman, if you'll come on up. So Coleman will be here. This is Coleman, the groom, if you'll stand there. I had a lot of kids turn me down for the groom position. Girls, if you'll come over here. Bryn, if you'll stay over there. Girls, if you'll go over there. Coleman, hand them a candle, if you will. Girls, you can turn that candle on on the bottom. This is what a wedding would look like. All right, I need, I need 10 girls, if we can get 10 up here. How many we got? I don't know. Somebody count. Close enough. All right. Bryn is our bride. Okay? Coleman is our groom. Don't think about this too much. Okay? Okay. Now, here's how this works. In one house, girls, if you'll get over closer to that house over there with that groom over there. In one house, the preparations were being made. This is the groom's house. But across town, there was a bride. And this bride has been at her house waiting for this night. Ever since the betrothal period, she has been putting a little candle in her window every night. Waiting for this night. Waiting for the preparations all to be made for this night when the groom would come. And she's excited. This is what our bride has been waiting on for months. Now across, way over here, what's been happening at the groom's house is the groom has been adding on to his home. He's adding on a room, an insula is what it's called. He's been building on. So the betrothal, the engagement period, is in for an indeterminate amount of time. It's not like today. It's when the house is ready. Then things start to happen. Now on this day, they've been prepared. And the wedding looked like this. Everybody that was in the family, all these young ladies that have been helping out, they stay at the house. They shut the door to the house after the preparations are made, and then the groom makes his way, walking with his groomsman, I'll be the groomsman, and he heads over to get his bride. Don't think about this too much now. All right, we're just taking volunteers. When he comes to get the bride, something awesome and amazing would happen in the community. And you guys are going to play a part in this. The preparations have been made. The party is getting, has, has been prepared. The ladies are waiting. They're ready. They have helped out. But the community needs to celebrate. And so when the groom arrived with his bride, y'all start following me, they would walk through the streets of the community. And the community would greet them and they would cheer and they'd get so excited. Right? Woo! Yeah! Right? They would step out of their houses and into the streets and they would greet and shake their hands and they would get 
so excited because this night people aren't asleep. This night people are excited that a young couple are entering into the covenant of marriage. Usually the groom wouldn't walk in front of his bride. (laughs) Like a jerk. (laughs) All right. Now, when they got closer, after people were cheering them on and excited about it, people would gather in the parade and they'd come along. Y'all don't have to do that. But as they got close, one of the groomsmen would yell out, Behold the bridegroom! And then the door would open and everybody would go in and begin celebrate. Those who were ready and those who were recognized, those whose faces could be seen and recognized at night would get to celebrate. Let's give our all our volunteers a little round of applause. Okay, y'all can have a seat. Thank you, Brynn. Y'all can have a seat, girls. Thank you. Your lights went out. We're going to talk about that. All right. Now, you can hold on to it. Now you're ready to hear this passage. Because that background is what Jesus is speaking about when he turns to his disciples in a parable and says to them, in a story about ten young ladies waiting for a wedding to begin, five wise and five foolish, he says this. He says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in the jars, in their jars, along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. In other words, his parades in the streets took hours. And all of them became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lights, our lamps are going out. Know that it's There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Now there's context. And one thing you didn't see in our silly little parade a moment ago was that our girls up here were carrying their lamp, their little light, their candle. The purpose of that in the streets at night was not just about direction, it was much more about recognition. The purpose of it was about your face being seen so that you would be known to be part of the party so that you could go inside. But there's even more context. Jesus gives this parable in response to a question that the disciples ask in chapter 24. They ask, when is all this going to happen? Which is, of course, a question in response to Jesus 
telling them this temple is going to be torn down. Matthew 24 and 25 is about the destruction of the temple. About an age coming to an end. We read it and we often think it's about the end of the world. It's not. It's about the end of an age, the end of the temple system. Its instructions in its context given to disciples in an uncertain time so they can face that time with certain faith. It's a little hint into what Jesus is trying to show them about obedience. When we read our parable in Matthew 25, 1-13, it also helps to know what follows. What follows is, is two more parables, both dealing with Obedience. Obedience to what you've been given and obedience to how you live. Live like a sheep, not like a goat. But for now, we're not going to focus on those. Instead, we're going to jump in and we're going to talk about this miracle. This specific teaching of Jesus to his disciples when they ask him, what do we do in these uncertain times? And he tells them this story. And he tells them a story that's got a lot of character. It's got a bridegroom. A bridegroom that seems to take his time on his parade. A bridegroom that's out for a long time. A long time enough to be that the people start to get drowsy waiting for the party to start. We have a bride, although not mentioned in the text. She's an assumed character. She's out on the parade too. And then of course the focus of the story is on these ten virgins. Five who are wise, five who are foolish, five who brought enough oil, and five without. But there's also other characters here that are inanimate objects. Lamps, oil, and a door. What I want to focus on in the text today is the problem. Like all of Jesus' good stories, this story comes with an issue. Jesus loves to tell stories that have a problem. Something that's a little bit off. Something that you've got to go, man, that doesn't make sense. It's like in Matthew 13 when he tells a parable about weeds in a field and he says, don't go pick the weeds. That's a problem in the text. It's like a shepherd who leaves 99 good sheep to go find the one that's lost. That's a problem in the text. Or a father in Luke 15 who is okay with giving away his inheritance to a rebellious son. It's a problem in the text. Jesus loves to tell, tell stories that draw us in through giving us a problem. So what's the problem in Matthew 25, 1-13? Anyone see it? As I was reading it, did your mind go, whoa, what's that? What's the problem here? Anybody pick up on it? Call it out. It's odd, right? Somebody may have said it. Nobody's calling it out loud enough. But the problem is this. The problem is not only that you have five girls who don't prepare, but more so, you have five who did prepare, but are unwilling to share. See, the problem in the text is that the heroes of the story are unwilling to share what they have. Now, it's odd, isn't it? 
In a world built around hospitality, that Jesus' world was, you have five that go, we're not giving you any oil. Now this, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what you're thinking about. I do kind of know what's going on here. I'm going to give it to you here in a minute. But I don't know if you know what's going on. Is this a case of scarcity? The availability of oil? The market's down? I don't know. Maybe it's a lesson on Jesus trying to just speak to the Boy Scouts. You always got to be prepared. I don't think that's actually what's going on. In the ancient world, the most high of all virtues was hospitality. The most upheld. Borrowing and lending was a shameful thing to forsake. It's what you took part in even for your worst enemy. So I don't think Jesus here is just simply highlighting borrowed resources. I think what he's highlighting is this. He's highlighting a story about a resource that you simply can't borrow. See, as followers of Jesus, and as the disciples knew this, we can give and borrow so much from each other. Man, when I need encouragement, I can get that from you. We spur each other on. When you need prayers, we can get that from each other. We can check on. We can inspire each other. Even in worship, we can borrow on our inspiration. We can rally around each other and around teachings. We can borrow on each other's knowledge. We can even borrow on your excitement to learn. I can borrow those things from you and hopefully you from me. But the one thing, I think this is what Jesus is getting at, the oil in the jar. The one thing you cannot give me and I cannot give you is devotion. I can't give you my devotion. In the kingdom and in the church, commitment cannot be bought. It's built. And that's what Jesus is getting. Discipleship, keeping your lamp burning, keeping your passion going, cannot be loaned, bought, or found except in your own heart. Each of us has to participate in the kingdom with our own resources. Now, if that sounds a little bit like Western individualism, it's not supposed to. So hear me out, because that is not what Jesus is teaching. He's not saying pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. What he's doing is he's reaching back into what he's always taught about followership. He's telling his disciples, times are going to get tough, but it's only the disciple who can drop their nets and leave everything and follow me. It's only in the heart of each one that you can find devotion to forsake what you want and build a life for the kingdom. And you know this to be true. We can borrow on a lot of Christian resources and things, and we should. That is communal living. But commitment and devotion and passion cannot be borrowed. It has to be good. You know that because we've all met followers of Jesus who just believe, right? They've bled devotion and discipleship. And when you're around them, you go, man, I want to be like that. I want to be like that person's compassion. I want to have their love. I want to have their knowledge of the text, their devotion to daily Bible reading, their ability to share life with joy. Of course, we've all been there, right? Man, I still want to be joyful like Ed Edgecoat, right? I want to 
be hospitable like Katie and Guy. I want to be encouraging like Jerry Smith. When I'm around those kinds of people, I go, oh, I want to be that way. On a personal note, one of the things that I often do and I make a mistake with is I'll hear other preachers or I'll talk to other ministers at other churches and they're just doing such good work. Or they do, when we have men's retreat and Mitch is there and he makes me look like a terrible preacher, I'm always like, man, I want to be like that. And I'm often left feeling envious of the things I don't have. And I think I can borrow. And I make the mistake looking at Matt for magic bullets, and you do too, and little tricks and things. That, that explains, if you've ever read the Jesus Calling book, which is a great thing, it's a great book. It's great. But guess what? You're borrowing on somebody else's passion for time alone with Jesus. And that's why you don't get it. That's why I was like, this is great, but I don't have these same thoughts. Because I'm borrowing. I want a magic bullet. But here's the thing. This is like being like Simon the Sorcerer next. What, what Jesus is getting, and the hard truth about this parable, is that when we see other inspirational Christians, they didn't get there because they borrowed from somebody else. They got there by their own devotion to Jesus. The oil that fills our souls and keeps filling our souls is the fruit of months and years of consistency and devotion and commitment and prayer and dedication. And you can't borrow that. It has to be real. Eugene Peterson put it this way. I got this up on the screen for you. It's so good. Eugene Peterson wrote the, the message version. It was a minister who decided early on, no matter how famous he got, he's pretty famous in Christian circles, that he would never minister in a church over 300 people because he decided that to be a good minister, he couldn't know over 300 people. He said this. He says, We live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different. That we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. That's pretty solid. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God. Not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. That's backwards than most of us think, Right? Well, I didn't really like worship today. I don't like the preacher. I don't like the church. I don't like the way things are going, so let's not be a part of the church. You're trying to borrow on the devotion of somebody else. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God. Bible study is what develops love for God. Prayer develops intimacy with God. You don't all of a sudden find yourself intimate with God and then discover prayer. That's what he's getting when we obey the commandment to praise God and worship, our deep essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. In other words, he says this in another way. He's saying this. Discipleship is a long obedience to the same direction. And that was the difference between the five wise virgins and the five virgins. Keeping your lamp burning is trusting and obeying in the right direction. It's keeping the fire that you didn't light, but the fire that God lit 
burning in your souls. Read the story about a young man named Ben Taylor who's been a follower of Jesus for several years now. And Ben's a little bit different because Ben, over the last several years, has practiced something that most of us take for granted. Most of us have a spam folder on our email, and we just let that take care of it, right? Or if you don't have a good spam folder, you spend your days deleting, right? Or you just ignore it, and the bottom of your phone has like 12, a number 12,000 or something on your email, right? And some of you are going, I don't know what email it is. Well, okay, whatever. All right. Uh, it's been around since 1987. Anyway, all right. Anyway. Ben, though, does something different than most of us. He checks his spam And a few years ago, he got a spam email, or what he thought was a spam email, from a man named Joel in Liberia, West Africa. Joel had one quick little message. He said, I need help from someone in the U.S. for financial and business assistance. Anything can help. Ben, of course, wasn't the only one to get this message. You probably got one from Joel in Liberia. But Ben didn't delete it. Ben wanted to see if this guy was legit. In fact, he said, my motivation was I wanted to see how scammers worked. I wanted to see how far I could go down the rabbit hole with this scammer. So he went down the rabbit hole and discovered that Joel was not fake. Joel was a real guy living in Liberia and really needed help. He went through all these channels, finally connected with Joel, and Ben flew all the way over to Liberia, helped Joel write a book about Joel's faith in Christ, and it sold quite a few copies. Now that story took off, and as you can imagine, many more spammers started to send Ben Taylor direct emails, right? A lot of scams. People looking for help all over the world. But one in particular, just a couple months ago, caught Ben Taylor's eye. It was an email that had pictures attached to it claiming to be from a lady who needed reconstructive surgery. She lived in Cameroon, and she needed help with this chronic pain. She was a young lady when she had this surgery, and it messed up her side, and she would go through horrible pain. Ben started to search this out and found out that this same email had been circulating across the internet for years from this lady. It was even listed on Snopes and other several scammer sites that try to alert people. But Ben, being a little different, decided to check it out. After months of research, I found out that this young lady was actually real. Her email had just been flagged as her name was Chica, and Chica had been suffering for years. So Ben Taylor what ben did what Ben Taylor does, and he flew halfway across the world to meet Chica. He got her to write her story down, and then he published it. With the money from the publishment of her story, he was able to get her surgery done. And now Chica is pain-free thanks to a guy who has an ability to be here for the long haul. To what Jesus is getting at is those who keep their oil flowing so their lamps can keep burning are those who know that long discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction.
Now I want to clear this up before we wrap up. Because I think what I just said in this passage can be misconstrued and it can be confused very easily and turned into a self-help kind of bootstrap gospel. Well, you just got to keep it going. You got to keep working hard. <laughs> right? You don't feel your faith, you need to have bigger faith, right? You're not feeling it right now, you just need to feel deeper. Right? You didn't pray enough, boy. That's your problem. That's not what Jesus is We sometimes make the mistake of making the gospel into a cause and effect relationship with Jesus. We're conditioned for that. From the moment of birth, we have been taught to live a life that only believes in grit, determination, and gritting our teeth, and a good reward follows good behavior. We believe that because on sometimes, and for a lot of times, that's sometimes true. But when it comes to the gospel, it is absolutely false. See, trained rats run through a maze as fast as they can because they have learned that the end is a food pellet, right? And we're not much different than rats. We run our own game, we perform, we strive, we study, we work, hoping to get satisfied, hoping to buy that next thing, hoping to get that next achievement, to find meaning, to discover purpose, to get that one little food pill, to go to sleep that night, and then the next day to do it all over again. And that's not the good news. That is not what Jesus is getting at. The good news is not... Let me be clear, it is not that God has come into the world and puts us on a treadmill of good deeds. The good news is that God comes into this cause and effect based world and messes with the whole system and says, I'm going to give you a grace based system. See, we believe that people should get what they deserve. Those ladies didn't fill up their own oil jar, so twined outside the party. But we miss something in the story. Jesus dares to offer that we could. Jesus dares to offer something that we could never earn. He says to a world run by cause and effect, I will show you a kingdom run by grace. See, in the story, there's something we all miss. We look at what happens, the cause and effect, but we miss that all ten virgins were already invited to the wedding. You missed that, didn't you? They were already invited. Their lamp was already burning. They were in. The grace had already been received. One group kept a flame of love and passion and determination going, and the other didn't. It's not that Jesus is saying, you better get your lamp right, or I'm going to push you out. That's not the good news. The good news is, is that we have all received a wedding invitation by utter and sheer grace. Now it's time to respond to it. And it's your job to keep the oil flowing. God lights the flame. Will you keep the oil filled with the flame? The parable is not about you only get one chance to get right with God. The parable is about keeping oneself growing and grounded in Christ because He has already made you right with Him. I wanted to show you what that looks like. Because that's so backwards from our world. 
You probably were taught at some point in your life that this parable was about you just better do things right. Yeah, we should. But grace is the fuel of our response. The gospel is not, I better get reconciled to God so that I can go to heaven. The gospel is, God, through Jesus, reconciled himself to us as a free gift of grace. Amen, church? That's what this is about. All the ladies were invited. And so our response to the gospel should be one of obedience out of joy, out of, out of passion, out of excitement. We shouldn't have to fuel and borrow on each other's devotion because, first of all, you can't. But we shouldn't because grace should give us all the fuel we need for life. You see what he's flipping around there? When I come to grips with how much I need Jesus, I shouldn't need your motivation to follow him. I should jump up and go, holy cow. To borrow a word from my language, holy cow. My whole life is changing. So I wanted to show you something that looked like this. This is a video, just a quick one minute, 18 second, I think, compilation video from Pioneer Bible Translators. This was the moment that they finally flew in in West Africa to this tribe called the Dacoma people. When they finally got to them in boxes, this is a compilation of how the village acted when they got their first New Testament in their own language for the first time ever. A project that took a long time. A time in which people might have fallen asleep. Some people's oil lamps may have went out. But some people stuck with it for decades to make sure that this language got translated. And here is how they responded. The parades, the music, the dancing, this is what it looks like. common, and you did too, that we don't even act like it's that big of a deal, right? 
Now, I'm not trying to pick on us for that, but this is what Jesus is getting at in the parable, is that some people were so excited about the coming king, about the groom, about the bridegroom, that they were going to do whatever it took to make sure it would be ready for him. Because their devotion was one direction. It was moving in one direction. Because the gospel had changed their life. That's why I love that video. The video, they're excited. Well, we don't want to dance. Yeah, you're white. You're not supposed to. <laughs> right? Right? We're not supposed to get excited about the Lord. Where does Scripture say that? Imagine waiting for 20 or 30 years to hear, for God so loved the world in your own language. See, that's devotion. That's joy. I think what Jesus is getting at is what the Tacoma people show us here is that when it comes to the gospel, our one response should be we want more. We want more. Because the gospel, again, and I'll close with this, is not a call for us to do something so that God might save us. The gospel is an announcement that what God has done through Jesus to save us has already been done so that we Trust his story. That's keep your lamp burning, church. If you're dry today, if you're going, man, my lamp is running out, I've got a challenge for you. There's this prayer in Luke 17, verse 5. It's not really a prayer. You would may not call it a prayer. I think it is. It's where the it's where the disciples turn to Jesus after he gives them a tough uh, teaching on forgiveness and dealing with difficulty in the church. And they go, increase our faith, Lord. And I think what they're saying is, fill up our faith. That's my challenge. If you're dry this morning, do that. If you're dry this morning, do something new. Do something different. Get up and dance for the Lord. Put some music on at home and try to get excited about Jesus again. Again, you can't borrow my devotion. You can't borrow the passion from your neighbor. But you can through obedience. Say, Jesus, I want more. Because you have it all. And I promise you, it'll change your life. If you need anything this morning, man, if you need some more of Jesus, he's got it in abundance. His oil doesn't wear out. He's got all that we need. All that we could ever want. He is enough. If you need anything this morning, we're here for you. We've got a couple of elders to be in the back praying. If you need them, if you need anything up front. We'd love to meet you up here. Let's stay together. Let's stay together.